From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is NEPR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. I'm Sam Hudzik, the news director at New England Public Radio. Thanks so much for listening. All right, coming up, nitrogen in the Connecticut River is no big deal until it hits the Long Island Sound and causes all sorts of problems. But, you know, back in the day... People were just happy to have a secondary treatment plant. They weren't even thinking about nitrogen. But then over the years, you know, that became more important. The first of two stories on the tricky economic and environmental questions about nitrogen in the river. Then, when Berkshire Bank decided it wanted to move its headquarters to Boston, the news caught Pittsfield's mayor off guard. Uh, Yes, I... um was unaware that they had um, been making these uh, corporate decisions. What Berkshire Bank's move means for, well, the Berkshires. And we wrap up with a tour of the enormous new gallery space at Mass Mocha and stop by a Northampton restaurant that's seemingly always at odds with the basic restaurant business model. All that's just ahead on NEPR News Now. But first... The Massachusetts State Democratic Convention convenes elected delegates on Saturday morning in Worcester. As they do every four years, attendees will revise and agree on a party platform that next year's gubernatorial candidate will be expected to run on. New England Public Radio's Carrie Healy asked political Massachusetts reporter Lauren Dzenski what we should expect. What's interesting this year is that we see this kind of bubbling organization coming from the remnants of the Bernie Sanders campaign. They've basically come together this spring and said that, you know, we want to have a show of force, and this convention is specifically where we're going to flex our muscles. So that Sanders effect, kind of a a vocal call to radically overhaul the party, is going to affect what comes out of it. Could they get into dangerous territory by overhauling this too far? Not necessarily. The the party platform is something that is actually quite progressive already and actually uh, aligns with a lot of things that uh, Sanders supporters believe already. The bigger question, and I think the biggest impact that they can have, is getting subsequent party leadership beyond just candidates for office to follow the platform. It's It's more, once you're actually elected, will these individuals and will these elected officials follow what the party wants. And for the Sanders supporters to continue to have presence and to, you know, show their strength in numbers, it then makes it more attractive almost, you know, for Beacon Hill leaders or, you know, officials around the state to, to follow what the party wants and, you know, what, what these Sanders Democrats want. Earlier this week, Richard Neal said we were a party of aspiration. You stuck with us. You were going to have job security and you were going to have pay raises. And I think that we've moved in the direction of more grievance than aspiration. Is Neal right that this is all about the economy? Is that likely to come up as they revamp the platform this weekend? We're already seeing talk about the economy, specifically from um, some gubernatorial candidates, people like Bob Massey, as well as Betty Warren have really, you know, made the conversation about the economy kind of at the forefront of of their early campaigns. Um, This is also something that we're seeing Senator Elizabeth Warren talk about quite extensively. She's talked about the economy for a while, but, you know, really embraced it in her latest book as well. So this this is something that's very, very front of mind for a lot of Democrats. And I think a lot of people, and I think Congressman Neal is a great example of this, 
they feel the Democrats didn't do a good enough job of talking about this in 2016, and that's one of the reasons why the party lost. So I, I'm curious, actually, to see how it plays out on the convention floor if, you know, gubernatorial candidates who are pushing the conversation about economic inequality, um, if, it, if it's more kind of a, you know, Sanders-aligned support. Um, that, that's something that will be really interesting to watch. Republican Governor Charlie Baker, who beat Democrat Martha Coakley in 2014, has uh, enjoyed strong approval ratings and uh, strong fundraising, and he appears to be well positioned to seek a second term. Where will these Democrats be looking to get an advantage over Baker, and do they have to fear a backlash? There's always a potential for pushback. Interestingly, the the majority of voters in Massachusetts are actually unenrolled. So while Democrats are seen as kind of the powerhouse, you know, in the legislature on Beacon Hill, it, it is sometimes more difficult for them to, to win the corner office than you would think. Uh, Governor Baker, enjoy, as you said, you know, he enjoys really strong support. And one of the things that will be interesting to watch is how strong specifically you know, the Senate president and the Speaker of the House and kind of the members of the legislature support the Democratic candidate for governor. Um, Of course, they're in that same party. But on Beacon Hill, the fights are often among the different branches. And so if it's a Democratic governor fighting with the Democratic, you know, Senate fighting with the Democratic House, the inter-party dynamic can be sometimes difficult. So Right now, we're kind of seeing everyone is is getting the best of both worlds and that there is a known, you know, opponent in a Republican governor and, you know, Democratic legislature. So that that dynamic uh, is kind of complicating things a little bit. And I think it also kind of speaks to people's excitement for these uh, Democratic candidates as well. We're not seeing as much enthusiasm as we did necessarily with, you know, Deval Patrick or someone like that. That's Lauren Dzinski from Politico. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. By the end of the year, the Environmental Protection Agency is expected to announce new limits on the amount of nitrogen that wastewater treatment plants in Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire can release into the Connecticut River. That could mean a small tweak of a system or a costly plant retrofit. No one knows for sure until the limits are announced. Nitrogen is a pollutant that's blamed for fish die-offs in Long Island Sound, where the Connecticut River winds up. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has the first of two reports. The Connecticut River is the largest freshwater tributary to the salty Long Island Sound. Nitrogen in the river is not considered a pollutant by clean water standards, but it quickly becomes a pollutant in salt water, where it causes rapid algae growth. When that algae finally consumes all of the nitrogen, and nitrogen comes in pulses, it doesn't come 100% all the time, they grow like crazy. Judy Preston is standing near the Long Island Sound in Old Lyme, Connecticut. She's a scientist with UConn and the EPA's Long Island Sound study, which in 2001 set a nitrogen reduction target for the sound, regulating wastewater treatment plants in Connecticut and New York. The algae's life cycle, she says, saps oxygen away from other vegetation and aquatic life, and when algae die... Then they start sinking down to the bottom. That's where the bacteria comes in and starts to consume the dead algae. And in doing that... They're consuming oxygen. And without oxygen, over the last few decades, fish have suddenly died by the thousands. Marshland has deteriorated. The whole system suffers. 
no one who works in wastewater treatment wants to witness a watershed slowly being killed off, including Mickey Novak, who delights, in fact, at the sight of people fishing in a river he's helped keep clean. Looks like you could jump right in, right? We're standing on the banks of the Connecticut River near the endpoint of the sewage treatment process. Below us is the pipe where up to 67 million gallons of effluent, the treated water, go into the river every day. This is a nice effluent, um, you know, does quite nicely in the Connecticut River. I'm sure the uh, nitrogen's under 10 milligrams per liter, so... Novak is the plant manager at New England's second largest regional wastewater treatment facility, serving seven towns. It's right across the river from the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, about 70 miles from Long Island Sound. Don't forget, no, don't forget, the atmosphere is 70... Back in his office, like a science teacher, Novak has three jars set up on a table. One is raw sewage, the influent, what comes into the plant. And it looks pretty clear. Well, listen, sewage is mostly water. It's mostly water. Novak describes the influent gentili, industrial and domestic flow. Well, it's what you flush down the toilet and pour down your sink. There's toilet paper in the jar. You can't really see it because it's manufactured to break down into tiny microscopic pieces. And there's nitrogen, too, because it's in what we eat. Ammonia is your most toxic form of nitrogen to go in a river. You know, the organic nitrogen, which is in urine and um, uh, fecal matter, you know, converted to ammonia in the collection system. And I think you've smelled ammonia in a diaper, right? Oh, yeah, yeah so, so the diaper hasn't been changed. And this plant, Novak says, does a good job removing nitrogen, and it could remove even more. The technology is there, but it would cost a lot of money. When this plant was first built, like plants all over the country in the 1970s with gobs of federal money from the Clean Water Act. People were just happy to have a secondary treatment plant. They weren't even thinking about nitrogen. But then over the years, you know, that became more important. Mickey Novak and his boss, Josh Schimmel, the executive director of the Springfield Water and Sewer Commission are waiting to hear from EPA about how much nitrogen the plant will be required to remove. And nitrogen removal is not Schimmel's priority. We don't think nitrogen is an issue from our wastewater treatment plant. He doesn't trust EPA's nitrogen data. And he says wastewater treatment plants are not the main nitrogen source for a problem more than an hour away from here. It's true that septic tanks... Field and land runoff, the atmosphere, are all contributing to the problem in Long Island Sound. But that won't keep EPA from putting a limit on the amount of nitrogen wastewater treatment plants up and down the Connecticut River are allowed to discharge. From north of the Connecticut border up to the river's headwaters in Vermont. For New England Public Radio, I'm Jill Kaufman. And on next episode, Jill has the story of what the new EPA nitrogen regulations might mean for wastewater treatment plants along the Connecticut River far from Long Island Sound. The reality is is that municipalities are being forced to accommodate nitrogen, and it's on our shoulders, and it's costing a lot of money. That's next time on NEPR News Now. No, we're not done yet. We just got started, of course. To the Berkshires now. News that Berkshire Bank plans to move its headquarters from Pittsfield to Boston caught some local officials by surprise. But they're hoping the bank's move could still end up being a positive for Berkshire County and its largest city. New England Public Radio's Adam Frenier reports. The moving of its headquarters to Boston goes along with Berkshire Bank's eastward expansion. The bank will pick up 19 branches in central and eastern Massachusetts if the acquisition of Commerce Bank goes through. CEO Michael Daly explained to investors why he thinks the move east makes sense. Increasing Berkshire's access to talent and transportation and business and civic leaders in growth markets 
Well, that'll be a benefit to all of our markets, allowing us to contribute even further to communities across our footprint. This announcement on Monday caught Pittsfield Mayor Linda Tyre off guard. Uh, yes, I um, was unaware that they had um, been making these uh, corporate decisions. Tyre has since talked to Berkshire Bank's boss. She says she's happy no job cuts are planned locally and Pittsfield will remain an operational hub for the bank. Still, those corporate or white-collar jobs the bank is looking to add won't be here. And that's been a problem, a lack of opportunities like this, especially for young professionals in the Berkshires. Tyre, though, does envision a scenario where some of those jobs could be shuttled west. Let's say, for example, they um, find some excellent talent and they bring that talent into their organization, and then there are expansion opportunities here in the Berkshires, and they may relocate some of those employees. That's an optimistic way to take the bank's move. But there is a perception of Pittsfield as a former industrial town struggling to reinvent itself and attract new businesses. Jonathan Butler, head of One Berkshire, the county's Chamber of Commerce, says news like this doesn't help in fighting that notion. He adds, though, as the bank's expanded to six states. What we've actually felt in the Berkshires as a result of that has been growth. They've created more jobs locally as they've expanded outside the region. So I think we're hopeful that that we'll see some of that and that Berkshire Bank is going to remain um, one of those true anchor organizations, real anchor presences here in the Berkshire economy. By any measure, Berkshire Bank has been a success story rooted in Pittsfield, soon to have over 100 branches and more than $12 billion in assets. And officials here are certainly hoping the bank doesn't forget about its roots. For New England Public Radio, I'm Adam Frenier in Pittsfield. The Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams was already one of the largest contemporary art museums in the country before a huge expansion that recently opened. The renovation of two existing buildings on the museum's campus and installation of enough art to fill the new space took a year and a half and cost about $50 million. New England Public Radio's Jeremy Goodwin filed this report last week before the grand opening celebration. On a recent afternoon, workers put finishing touches on new galleries at Mass Mocha. The museum in downtown North Adams occupies a series of disused factory buildings. They were once home to a textile mill called Arnold Printworks. If you already thought Mass Mocha's 130,000 square feet of gallery space was a lot, you were right. So picture this. That square footage doubles on Sunday when the museum unveils its latest renovation a three-story building that was once the Printworks Dye House. Yes, we are in the very nose end of Building 6, the far end of Mass Mocha's campus. That's curator Denise Marconish. It's a double-height space with almost a, a full two-story window looking out at the area where the two branches of the Hoosick River reconverge. So with so much new gallery space, how do you fill it all? <laughs> That's always the loaded question. One answer is to reconfigure the space to fit groups of works by single artists on long-term loan. The warehouse floor plan started as a large grid with rows of 60 columns apiece. Now, all that raw space has been sculpted into different shapes. There are long, open expanses flooded with natural light and tightly cloistered galleries where you might forget you're on a former factory floor. A chunk taken out of the ceiling makes room for a large-scale sculpture by Louise Bourgeois. Near that is a maze-like series of printed panels by Robert Rochenberg. And then there are the musical instruments. They're almost comically oversized, built by the late Bennington College professor Gunnar Schoenbeck. 
musician Mark Stewart curated the Schoenbeck exhibit. He says the message to museum goers is, please touch the art. This is a single string fiddle. He made a whole family of these different sizes, and they're actually played with a stick. You can imagine when you have a little gaggle of these all playing together, it's really quite festive. Stewart says visitors to this gallery are invited to make some noise, regardless of musical training. People immerse themselves in sound and in improvisation because that's really all that's going on in there. You cannot play Melancholy Baby or Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. You can find what you are interested in. You can delight yourself and you can delight your neighbor or you can delight your family. That immersive spirit carries over to a virtual reality installation by multimedia artist Laurie Anderson. And light sculptor James Terrell created an otherworldly white room. Visitors can walk into it and get enveloped in a disorienting bath of LED light. That piece is so immersive, it requires a safety disclaimer when museum director Joe Thompson leads a preview tour. If any of you are photosensitive to stroboscopic effect, now would be a time to leave. <laughs> because when it happens, it's quite powerful. You can literally see the back of your eye. You'll see the vein structure and the rods and cones on the back of your eye. Such warnings were not necessary back in 1999 when Mass Mocha first opened on a portion of its current footprint. When we began Mass Mocha, it was simple. It was going to be large spaces for large works of art that sat there, a depot. The museum's growth since then includes renovation of adjacent space it rents out to about 30 businesses and development of performing arts events like its own bluegrass festival and a music festival curated by the rock band Wilco, which returns in June. The sort of gradual, steady re-inhabitation of this site has been immensely satisfying, but it's also been unpredictable. Unpredictability is not the first quality that large art institutions look for. But for this museum, on this post-industrial site, it might be just the thing that makes it all work. For New England Public Radio, I'm Jeremy Goodwin. If you could pay a little extra for your meal to help feed a hungry person, would you? That's what one restaurant in western Massachusetts is hoping diners will consider when they come in to eat. But as Catherine Davis Young reports, making changes to the restaurant business model is complicated. The jar next to the cash register inside the Haymarket Cafe in Northampton looks at first glance like a tip jar. But a small sign explains this isn't money for the employees, it's money for other customers. And I'll be like, oh, you know that's not tips, right? That's not for us. That's actually for this, this thing we're doing called the common account. That's Peter Simpson. He's owned the Haymarket Cafe for 26 years. And it's true, his employees don't work for tips. In fact, the Haymarket did away with tipping about a year and a half ago. Simpson increased his menu prices a little bit and started paying all of his employees $15 an hour, no tips. Now, this year, Simpson had another idea for his restaurant. In February, he added one item to the menu, a rice bowl that was offered on a sliding scale or pay-what-you-can basis. Any hungry person could order it, no questions asked. But then Simpson and his staff thought, why not apply the same theory to the rest of the menu? It's almost like pay-forward, where someone will come in and they'll buy a coffee and they'll, and they'll buy two coffees, and that's for the next person who comes in who, who might 
who might want it or need it. The Haymarket menu still has prices listed, but now if diners want to contribute to meals for those in need, they can pay into a fund. Or if they need help paying their bill, they can use the common account to make up the difference. It's not the first restaurant to try something like this. Pay-what-you-will restaurants have popped up in cities like Philadelphia and Denver in recent years. But in the notoriously risky restaurant business, can a charitable program like this really be sustainable? Roman Golden is the general manager of the Haymarket. He's been watching the Common Account closely the past few months. For at first, it seemed like it was going to be fine, but as of the last maybe month or so, I'd say it's really picking up. And by that, Golden means the sliding scale meals are really picking up. He estimates about 40 or 50 people are using the Common Account to pay for their meals every day. So now there's more money coming out of the fund than there is going into it, and that worries him. But Simpson, the owner, says he's glad the common account seems to be helping some people. So I want to make it possible. I'm just trying to figure out how. Because <laughs>、um, in reality, I do run a business, you know, and I think there's a way. I'm just trying to figure it out. The Haymarket Cafe's common account program may need to change slightly moving forward, but Simpson says he's adamant it will continue. For New England Public Radio, I'm Catherine Davis Young. This podcast is produced by New England Public Radio, the same listener-supported public media company that pumps news and music to your car, your home, and your phone. You can support it all at nepr.net. Just click the bright orange donate button at the top of the page. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now—stories you really should not miss. Until next time.